You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When we look ahead to retirement, one big question, big, is are you doing everything you can to maximize your social security benefits and save for the future? It's time to make sure your plan is rock solid. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more about specific ways to do just that with a complimentary wealth checkup. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The core of when somebody has power but isn't as highly regarded, it becomes a problem. And so if a woman does nothing else and they have power, it's possible that if the world sees them as someone who doesn't deserve it, then that's why it's threatening. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. What I'm about to say next includes a few examples of the sort of sentences that you might hear in the workplace. Don't you think this is the best option? Maybe if we went in this direction, instead the client would be happier. I'm a little bit concerned that our numbers aren't where we want them to be. Believe it or not, these are all examples of what's called weak language that women especially use in the workplace. And for as long as I can remember, women have been told, just stop it, cut it out, stop using terms and phrases like this if you want to be respected or get a promotion or have your ideas considered in a room full of men. We've been told to stop saying I think this is the best decision and just say, this is the best decision. What's been ingrained in our minds is that we need to come across as authoritative in the workplace if we want to get ahead, even if it's totally against our nature at home. But now some research is flipping this long-held belief on its head. In an experiment from the psychology journal Sage, women who followed a script using weak language incorporating phrases like, I don't know how typical it is for women in this position to negotiate a higher salary, and I hope you'll see that what I'm bringing to the table in this role is an asset to the company, were more likely to get a raise. Research found that by using those qualifiers, I don't know, I hope, It was an acknowledgement of their boss's authority. It was seen as less arrogant. Women came across as more likable and more open to negotiation. Now, of course, for men, it was a totally different story. No one was phased when they came right out and asked for exactly what they wanted. For men, using weak language neither helped or hurt their case. Go figure. But the question is, how can we use this sort of information to our advantage? when we go into our next 
big presentation when we go in to negotiate for a higher salary. Allison Fergale is an award-winning research psychologist specializing in the power of powerless speech. She is joining us today to show us exactly how to use it. She has a PhD in organizational behavior. She is a professor at the University of North Carolina's Keenan Flagler Business School. In her former life, she was a consultant for McKinsey, where she advised on corporate strategy and change management. Allison, it's so nice to have you here. It is such a pleasure to be here. I am actually stuck on a line from your bio, the power of powerless speech. What does that mean? So that was the title of a paper I published that looked at this phenomenon that we're going to talk about today, and essentially reclaiming the value of a way of speaking that had generally been devalued. So I, when I use that phrase, I used it mainly for the alliteration in it. But the idea is that there is a usefulness of a style of speaking that we had traditionally dismissed. Okay, so what is the research tell us? Why is it, first of all, that women have been told for so long that we need to be assertive or more assertive at work? Where did that notion come from? And then how did you decide to try to prove that wasn't true? So what I study fundamentally is not speech. I actually study status. But there are a lot of tools that we use to gain status and manage status, and speech is one of them. So what is status? Status is how much other people respect and regard us. So it matters a great deal. It's a fundamental human need that drives people's behavior. We seek it. We want it. When we lack it, it's a bad psychological state. So status is really important. And where status comes from is other people's judgments of us. So my status exists only in other people's minds. I only have as much as they think I do, as the amount of esteem and respect and regard that other people give me, that is my status. And how do we get status? It comes from two places. For us to respect and regard people, we need to believe two things about them. One, they're capable. They're smart. They're hardworking. They get things done. If someone has those qualities, you hold them in higher regard. The other piece is that they're giving, that they're going to use their talents to help other people and not just help themselves. So when you're capable and you're warm, that's the magic recipe for getting status and that we see in all the research, mine and others. Where speech comes in is that it's a cue that we pay attention to. If I am meeting you, I'm talking to you, how capable and giving are you? I'm going to look to the cues that you're giving off to be able to figure it out. So if you have a response to a difficult question in a meeting that's very succinct and articulate and and fact-based, I would think, oh, okay, Jean really knows what she's talking about. So I'm looking at these cues. So speech is a cue that we use to try to figure out how capable and warm other people are. So when people put a lot of these fillers into their speech, which I use the term in my paper, powerless speech, although it's not really powerless at all, but when people put fillers, they hesitate. They use tag questions where they take a statement and turn it into a question by saying right or you know at the end. When they use a disclaimer, this might be a bad idea, but when they hedge, I think all of these additions to speech have two consequences. 
One consequence is they make people be seen as less capable. But the benefit is that they enable people to be seen as more warm and giving. So it's not a useless speech style. You are seen as less good on one dimension that matters better on another. When you do the opposite, when you strip all those things away, you are seen as more assertive, intelligent, competent. You get a boost on capable, but you are also seen as less warm. So if we go back to your question, why have women been told, ditch that stuff? It's the idea that being female is associated It's what we call an ascribed status characteristic. It's something that's not an indicator of ability necessarily and that you generally tend to be born with and cannot change, but that has implications for how capable you are. And so what we see is all other things being equal, people hold a bias, a stereotype that women are less capable than men. Unfortunate as it is, that's where it starts. And so if you seek status like everyone does and you are female, you have a greater challenge in overcoming your gender to say, hey, I'm capable. And so I think that's where the advice came from, which is we couldn't articulate all of this, but we knew that women had this challenge. And so when you use a speech style that's high on warmth and a little bit lower on capability, that's not really solving the problem you have. You have a capability problem. So that's where the advice, I think, originates. It's so interesting. And I want to talk about the advice for getting to the other side of it and finding that mix between warmth and capability. But as you were describing the issue, I'm flashing on all of these things that women have been told not to do, right? Up talk. How many times have we talked to teenage girls about the up talk and the up talk at the end of the sentence and you got to stop with the up talk, the questions, that the fact that everything seems to end in a question or even just a higher voice. I was told <laughs> years ago, I was told I would never get on television because my voice was too high. And I do find myself modulating down a little bit but not a tremendous amount. I think you're right. These are things that are just baked into the way that we are raised, the way that we are socialized, the way that we make friends, and it doesn't necessarily translate to the workplace. So women have been given a lot of advice, and I would say the intent of it is good, which is people are trying to give advice as to how to show up to other people to your best advantage, how to show up so that you get respect and esteem and regard. You get status that you very much desire. So the intent of these pieces of advice, I think, are good. I think the downside of them is that we give a very simplistic message. If you do this, you're successful. If you do that, you're going to fail. And it's slightly more complicated than that. So I always say to people, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters how you show up. It matters greatly what other people think of you, like it or not, because that is where your status comes from. So we need to be aware of it. We need to navigate it. How people see us matters. And the cues that we give off do affect how people see us. So we should be aware of them and recognize, okay, people with higher pitched voices tend to be seen as warmer and less capable than people with lower pitched voices. 
It's a fact. Now, what do I do with that fact? And what I try to do, and I think, Gene, this is why I adore you, is I think we have very different areas of expertise, but the same mission, which is to elevate women to control the variables that they can control to have the best possible lives that they can have. And so I try to do this through thinking about these variables of how do you show up in the world. So when I coach people and talk to people, I would say, if you find speech is an easy variable that you like to control to change how you show up from situation to situation, go with it. But if, like me, you talk the way you talk and it's not that easy to change it, don't stress out about it. But be aware, hey, I have a style. It's a little higher pitch. I definitely use a lot of these weak language markers. I acknowledge it. I don't try to change it. But then what I try to find is to say, okay, that is helping me show up as really warm and friendly. And that's good. People think I'm approachable. What am I going to do on the capable side? How am I going to navigate that piece? And so I'm a big believer of add, don't subtract. You don't have to stop doing something you're doing generally, but to think, what am I missing? What's the other piece I could add in? Thinking about how do we show up as capable, if it's through your speech or it's through your tone of voice or it's through what you're wearing, use every possible advantage you have, but it doesn't have to be any of those things. It can be your educational credentials. It can be the way that you answer questions in a meeting. It could be your position at work. All of these things are tools. And so I try to counsel people to be a little bit more nuanced in the way they think about it, which is recognize all the tools you have and then use the ones that work for you and don't stress out about the fact that you have to have a certain voice and a certain kind of hair and a certain anything else. You have choices. I am thinking about Elizabeth Holmes. What do you think of her? Well, I think she's brilliant and I would like to see her use her brilliance for good. I think her ability to understand how to navigate how you show up and to affect how other people think about you is quite masterful. The means were good. The ends, not so much. You know, I've read Bad Blood. That's probably most of the thing I've learned, which reads like a John Grisham novel. But in terms of changing the behavior, I think the reason people pass judgment on it is because of how the story ended. I think that if she had been a young entrepreneur who had gone very Steve Jobs and lowered her voice, and then as she had grown, had dropped some of those behaviors because she didn't really need them anymore and had changed her style, people might have noticed, and because she's female, people might have said something about it, but it would have had a very different story to it because that she had been very successful in a very authentic and honorable way. I just think it's so fascinating. And and you're right. I mean, I remember the first day that Katie Couric did not wear pantyhose on the Today Show set. And it was a thing. It was just a thing. And she was like, it is 90 degrees outside. I am not wearing pantyhose. And she gave us all the freedom to stop wearing pantyhose. But it was a thing for a minute. But because she had already found her power, it was not a thing anymore. That's right. And so when someone has the status and the power, they have the license to then defy convention. And then once that happens, then they also have the ability to you know, help other people, which is one of the things that I'm sure you talk about, too, and I, I, I try to talk about as well, which is once you get to a certain level, then you can think about how you can make things easier for a lot of people who don't have the status and the power that you have yet. 
And I'm sure that she has come up as an example in the work that you've done over the past couple of years, because if you look at tapes of her in the courtroom, she's very soft-spoken, she's wearing pastels, she's ditched the bright red lipstick, her hair is not so severe. When you look at the act that she was putting on to run her company, she went full Steve Jobs. She always wore the black turtleneck and the uniform and literally lowered her voice three octaves. In the scope between Zero, Minnie Mouse, and Elizabeth Holmes, right? How do you find your right persona or the right approach? Because I called you for the podcast after I read a column that Adam Grant wrote in the New York Times where he said, actually, weak language can be used to your advantage. And how is that actually true, right? You're dialing up the warm, but then how do you find the perfect blend? The goal is always the same for every human being. Male, female, does not matter. The more you show up to the world and that people walking around look at you and say, that is a capable and warm person, the better life will be for you. That's the goal that we all share. And then the question is, how do we get there? And so what I would say is, if you look around to all the people you know in your life, that you would say, yeah, that's a person I attribute a lot of status to. I really respect them. I see them as really capable. I see them as really giving. I guarantee you, they're not all clones of each other. You hold them in equally high regard, but the way that they behave and show up, there's nuance, there's difference. So I would say the perfect blend is the blend that enables you to show up as capable and warm as you truly are to everybody. But how you do it, you can have a lot of authenticity. So yes, I agree that language is a tool and some people use it very well, sometimes for good, sometimes for evil, but they use it very well. And if you can use it well, I say absolutely use it. It's a tool. You should run with it. And you can dial it up and dial it down. So if you're in a situation where you'd say, hey, my capability is the most important thing here, I'm going to change my speech style. I'm going to be a little bit more direct, a little bit more authoritative. That's what I'm going to do. Great. You say, hey, my warmth and my givingness is the most important thing here. I'm going to change my style. You can do that. I would say two things. One is those dimensions aren't equally important at all times. And that was actually the other piece of that research that Adam was referencing, is that in my work, the idea that powerless speech is warm, that was generally well known. But the contribution of that work in particular was that being warm is sometimes more important for your status than being seen as really capable. And that's particularly true when people have to work with you. Nobody likes working with jerks. And so the more interdependent people are, the more people actually care about the warmth when they think about who they respect. The more independent we are, then the less we care about the warmth. So if I look at a person I don't know, they're just a celebrity CEO or a figure out in the world, their warmth may not be as important to me of judging how much I respect them. I just look at those really capable people and I think it doesn't really matter how horrible of a human being I hear they are. They're getting things done. I'm okay with it. Of course, because I don't have to work with that person. The way we judge our status and how much capable and warm come into the equation, it varies. And so sometimes Powerless speech can be a really good tool, particularly when you're interdependent with people. But all that said, I also want to speak to people who say, 
there's no way it would feel authentic or good to be changing how I talk. I talk how I talk. And I want to say to everybody who feels that, that doesn't mean you can't manage your status. Of course you can manage your status. But if that's not a variable you're going to use, what are the other variables you're going to use? You have to find some way to show up as both capable and very warm. And if your speech isn't doing it for you, or if your tone of voice, or your facial expressions. So I am trying really hard to smile. I am not a natural smiler. And some people are. And smiling is a really good cue for warmth. But my general way of walking around the world is I just have a frown-like face. Once you recognize it, sometimes I can control it. Takes a little bit of effort. But if I'm not going to do that, then I have to think that's the signal I'm sending. What else am I going to do? So that's where I think the nuance comes in. But the happy message there is everyone can be successful. You don't have to have a certain voice. You don't have to have a certain anything. You just have to have an awareness of how you're showing up. And if you're not showing up on clicking all the dimensions that people need to respect you, that you add some things in. It's so interesting that you talk about the not smiling. When you say, I don't naturally smile, I immediately think of resting bitch face because that's what we've called it. And the reason that the world has called it that, I think, is because people find female power threatening. It is 2023, right? Why do people still find female power so threatening? So it's a great question. I'm going to take a step back and say this. People find power in the hands of lower status individuals threatening. And now I'm going to break that down. So I've done some powerless speech work, but I said my real area is status. And one of the areas that I've been focusing on over the past several years is the distinction between power and status and what happens to people when they have more of one than the other. So you said female power. Power, the way psychologists talk about it, is resource control. You have things that other people want. You have wealth, you have money, you control budgets, you have power. That's not the only form of power, but essentially when you're talking about financial acumen, you're talking about people being able to gain a form of power in their life. So power is resources, status is respect. Why do people find female power threatening? Why do people find women controlling resources threatening? Whether they have the authority to hire or fire or say yes or no, pay, promote, all of those things. People want power to go where the respect is. They want the control to be with the person that they respect the most. And when that doesn't happen, when power is in the hands of somebody that is less well-regarded, a variety of bad things start to happen. We don't like it. We don't like that person because they're in that situation. We start treating them poorly. They might react in turn. The relationship starts to have a self-fulfilling spiral to it. So that's the core of when somebody has power but isn't as highly regarded, it becomes a problem. Women, relative to men, being female is a lower status assumption or category. And so if a woman does nothing else and they have power, it's possible that if the world sees them as someone who doesn't deserve it, then that's why it's threatening. That's why they don't like it. But that also means that not every woman 
who has power is threatening. And if you think about which ones are and which ones aren't, the ones that aren't threatening are the ones that are also highly respected. I think Oprah is an example, right? I would guess people may not find Oprah's power threatening because people really like Oprah and people really respect Oprah. And so when you're well-liked and well-respected, people have no problem with your power if you're female, if you're Black, if you're anything else. It is that if you have power and people don't think in their non-conscious brain, you have enough respect and regard to deserve it. And so I would say the female power is not a uniquely female problem. It is a status problem. And I think that's good and bad news. It doesn't only apply to women, but it also starts to give us a sense of the ways that we can control it to be able to navigate it, even when our sex or gender remains the same. It makes so much sense to me because nobody drives me as crazy as the service people who can tell me that I have to stay in my home from eight in the morning until two in the afternoon to wait for them. They can't give me an hour. They give me a six hour window and I am paralyzed. And when they get to my house, I am angry because they made me wait and they had all the power and I had no power. And that is a very frustrating situation. It is. And having just gotten back from a trip, airport security, right? Nothing brings out bad behavior than going through airport security. A lot of people at airport security are male, but it's not a gender issue. It's the idea that you have a tremendous amount of power. Phone goes here, water bottle here, et cetera. But as an occupation, it's not regarded as the highest status occupation. There's a lot of control in that moment. So you go to the DMV, you go to the post office. As soon as you walk in, you become this negative, frustrated person that you weren't five minutes earlier. And what's happened is your brain has changed in this interaction of, I am now in a low power situation with a person that I don't think necessarily has high status. And that's exactly what you're describing. Wow. So much to unpack here. And I think so much to get to as far as tactics for how to take all this information and put it together in a way that works not just in the workplace, but in your life. That's what we're going to do in just a sec. For now, we're going to take a quick break. Hey, Her Money family, here's a fun announcement. Our 400th episode is coming up. Can you believe it? And I want you to call in to ask me anything. Do you have questions about your financial life, your retirement, your kids, your house? What about if you and your partner are splitting bills fairly? I want to talk about every single bit of it. So Email us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Send your question, but also send your details how to get in touch with you because we want to get you on the air. Can't wait. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Retirement is on the horizon. And when we talk about saving and investing to prepare for our future, we also have to talk about Social Security. It is an important part of our financial futures, but too many of us don't do enough to maximize our social security benefits. That's why it may be time for a wealth checkup to help make sure your strategies are the best they can be for your unique situation. Personally, I think everyone, everyone needs a checkup about 10 years out from retirement. You can schedule your complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. We are back with research psychologist and professor Allison Fregale. All right, let's take all of this and let's 
put it together. You were talking about the different factors that we can control in order to put our best foot forward and get what we want or get more of what we want in the workplace. What are the things, what are the levers that we should try to pull on where the change is easiest and most effective to make? So the answer might differ person to person. I always say start with an audit of what you currently do. And to think about how do you show up, what signals I give off. Ask for feedback from people who will actually tell you the truth. So at some point in your career, it sounds like you did, whether you asked for it or not, someone said, your voice is high. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. To get the feedback of how do I show up? And then to think about which pieces are missing. So I'll give you some examples from my own life. And these may or may not work for everybody, but you can start to see the ideas. I speak a lot for a living, just like you do, okay? Unlike you, I'm not as well-known. So I get on a stage and I have about 30 seconds for everybody to figure out who I am and whether or not they should listen to me. I found that I used to never introduce or say where I went to school or to mention that I had a PhD. Just felt like, why do I need to give my bio from the stage? And I'm just here to have a conversation, people. But you realize that, wait a second, if capable isn't necessarily something that the world associates with me. What options do I have? And so I started to figure out, okay, I need to actually talk about what my credentials are, why I'm here. And I'm doing that. They're honest. It's authentic. But I'm doing it strategically because I need to show people in a short period of time, hey, I'm actually capable. And once I do that, then I can focus back on the warm and the friendly and the giving. I talk about research of my field. It's another form of capability. When I'm able to say, hey, here's a study that talks about this. When you're able to cite a statistic and say, hey, here's something we know about women versus men and money. Oh, okay. Jean has facts. Allison has facts. So talking first, bringing your idea up first in a meeting, making a first offer in a negotiation, that's one we can start to use and be a first mover. It's not going to be out till 2024, but I am working on a book about these exact things to give people a lot of ideas for how you can show up. But at the end of the day, what I do want is for people to have choice. So those would be some that I use. And I think what I always say to people is there's a way that you're doing that is uniquely you, that enables you to show up as really capable. Keep doing it. Keep rolling with it. It's absolutely working. What about appearance and what specifically about appearance in a remote work environment? People draw cues based on appearance. So there's halo effects based on how people look. So halo effect is you're good on one thing, you're good on everything. So when people show up in a way that society considers to be professional or attractive or whatever thing, you get a halo from that. I think it's something to be aware of. But again, then I stopped short of saying anyone should have to look any particular way or be any particular way. If someone shows up, if I'm interviewing someone and they show up in their pajamas, even my non-conscious brain is going to probably think something about that. Even if my conscious brain says, hey, you don't know what that person was going through. Maybe it was all they could do just to make it here. And it's remote anyway. But my non-conscious brain, that's the other piece of it to be aware of, is not all of the judgments we make are in our conscious minds. Our non-conscious minds are doing a lot of this. So I think that thinking about it as another variable that you can choose to control as you wish is a valuable thing to do. Certainly in the remote environment, I think that 
you only need good shirts. You don't really even need pants or shoes. But the way that you can control your space and what's behind you, what you're wearing, et cetera, it's just tools. But when you think about my goal is to show up is really capable and really giving. And the less people know me, and the less time they're going to spend with me, the more all these other cues that are really, at the end of the day, just noise, start to be all I have. If I can control them and I can shape the way people see me, that will be to my advantage. It explains why you're interviewing some uber-famous, stereotypically male CEO who shows up in a ripped t-shirt, because they can. Because at that point, they have so much status that nobody uses clothes as a signal anymore. And so we think, if they can do it, I can do it. No, there's a big difference. Their status is already well-established and non-negotiable. It's not in dispute. When you're a newcomer, and I have no idea who you are or what to think about you, my brain is putting this whole picture together. I think that, again, I like the message of there's no one way to be, but you should be aware of the different signals. And to the extent you like to be able to control the way you show up through your space, you absolutely should do that. Because at the end of the day, what matters is what the other person thinks about you and Sometimes those noisy cues do make a difference, especially in new interactions. You write and you talk a lot about negotiation in general. In one of your talks, you said women are much less likely to approach a negotiation with their own self-interest in mind than men are. Why is that? And isn't a negotiation all about self-interest? So at the end of the day, why does a human being negotiate? They negotiate, yes, to get a better outcome for themselves than they could get without negotiating. So negotiation is fundamentally about improving your outcomes. It's self-interested in that regard. It doesn't need to be only self-interested, meaning it doesn't have to happen at other people's expense. So some of the research you cited at the top of this show talks about this. One, the word negotiation is itself a masculine word. It conjures up a set of behaviors that we associate with men, being dominant, being demanding, being aggressive. And as a result, sometimes women think, that's not me. So one of the things I do when I do a lot of work with women is we all negotiate. You do too. Everyone does. Reclaim the word. And so what great research has shown that when you take the word negotiate out and you replace it with the word ask, you actually eliminate almost all the gender differences we observe in negotiations. Because ask is all of a sudden, that's a very female word. I can ask. I negotiate. I don't know. But ask, sure. You change the word. You change people's behavior. You change the beneficiary. You change people's behavior. So another great study showed that although women don't do as well as men when they're negotiating for their own benefit, they do a lot better when they're negotiating for somebody else's benefit. All of a sudden, now being a really effective negotiator is simply getting somebody else what they need. I can do that. Those are the things we say women don't have a skill issue when it comes to negotiation at all, but we often have a a different narrative we tell ourselves. Now, that said, the research that you were talking about is that backlash to women in negotiations can be very real. And what the research has shown and why those different kinds of relational accounts are helpful is it's not the presence of self-interest that people react badly to. It's the absence of other interest. It's okay if I go after what I want as long as I can do it in a way that feels like it's good for you or that I can show that I care about you. And that turns out to be really critical. 
So in Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg gives this example where she was negotiating for her role at Facebook. And according to her, she when she negotiated her compensation package, she reports a two-sentence quote. She said, you're hiring me to run a deal team, so you want me to be a good negotiator. This is the only time you and I will ever be on opposite sides of the table. And those are two very smart lines because in two sentences, without changing what she's asking for, in fact, asking for more, she's able to say, I'm going to do a really good job for you, and I care a lot about being loyal to you and helping you. And when we can communicate these things, those are hugely advantageous to everyone, but they're particularly useful to women. So when we give advice to people who are negotiating or asking for more money, when we explain the things that we will be doing for the company, bringing to the company, adding value to the company, whether it's in time or in process or in the actual bottom line, however it works, that's where we really want to focus. And that's where we need to be really armed and able to tell our story. That's exactly right. So it could be either future value. Here's, I bring these credentials and this training and this education, and so I will be able to contribute. Or if you've already been there and had a track record at this company or another company, to say, let me show you the proof, to collect data, to keep a good record of it, so that when you come in to have a conversation, you can say, here's the evidence. It could be numbers. It could be qualitative evidence. Here's the reports from people, what it's like to work with me. But collect your data and say, here's the value that I contribute. Absolutely, that is a strong negotiating position to be in, regardless of gender, which is I want X and it's because I give you Y. So you see that as a good trade. I, you give me more money, I have given you this exceptional level of contribution. Can all of these tactics, trying to keep in mind the balance between capable and warm and giving more than you're getting, or at least telegraphing that you're giving more than you're getting. Can all of these tactics work outside of the workplace? If I want my husband to not leave the dishes in the sink, is this the sort of process that I can use to get what I want? Yes. This is the beauty of negotiation skills. There's a professor, Lee Thompson, at Northwestern who in her book wrote, negotiation skills are like math. Add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And it's a great analogy that I wish I had come up with, especially because I was a math major in college. Add, subtract, multiply, and divide. If you know those four skills, you can do a lot of stuff. You can use them at work, right? You can use them to figure out what, what's my marathon pace going to be based on how quickly I can run this mile, right? You can use them to figure out, right, how much money do I need to save every month to be able to have the retirement that I want to have? Add, subtract, multiply, and divide do a lot of things. You don't need to learn marathon math and you don't need to learn financial math. You just learn math. Negotiation skills are this great toolkit. And when I teach them, I say, it's not a deal-making toolkit. It is a relationship management toolkit. It is how you navigate relationships when you have goals and you have things that you want, whether it is your husband to 
empty the dishwasher, your kids to do their homework, whatever it is, you have goals. At the same time, you want to make sure that you leave the relationship as good or better than you found it. So if I told you, get your husband to empty the dishwasher and it doesn't matter if he hates you in the end, that's not very hard. It's navigating (laughs) both, which is I need to get what I want in the context of this long-term relationship that I care a lot about and isn't going to be a one-time interaction. So absolutely, when you have these skills and when you learn them in a personal context, you can translate them into professional. When you learn them professionally, you can translate them into personal. And the simple idea is figure out what the other person wants and look for something that you can give that is an easy trade to make, right? What is the thing? And so in a conversation about household chores, it might be, what are the chores that you like and what are the chores that I like or what are the ones you really hate and the ones I really hate and we can make a trade. So I, with my husband, I hate emptying the dishwasher, but I don't mind doing more of my share of things as long as I never have to empty the dishwasher. So thinking about what you have to trade is is going to be the central you know, negotiation skill, whether it's at work or it's at home. Allison for Gail, thank you so much. This was super fun. And I hope that you'll come back when the book is published. We would love to let everybody know that it's out. I would love nothing more, Jean. Where can, in the meantime, our listeners find more about you and your work? Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. And I try to post there a lot related to negotiation, influence, advocacy, specifically for women. And my website as well, which is allisonforgale.com. All right. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks, Jean. And now we are going to take a quick break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us from her new digs, which I know people can't see, but you're in a new apartment in a new place. Congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. Big Mo- things happening. Very big things happening. Julia moved in with her boyfriend. So. I live with a boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you laugh when you say that all the time. Because <laughs> it's so funny. I live with a boy. Yeah. Every time my friends come over, they're like, you live with a boy. I'm like, <laughs> I live with a boy. <laughs> very, very funny. Yeah. All right. Let's dig in. We've got a couple of questions. And this first question is actually, it's a big one. So go ahead and, and let's read it. All right. Our first question comes from Rebecca. She writes... Dear Jean, I work in the TV film industry in Los Angeles and have been out of work for months despite my best efforts, like so many of us across the U.S. in this business during the last several months. 
I work in the docu-series space, and words like unprecedented on our job chat boards are common now when describing the dire straits so many of us in the industry are in. Jobs are few and far between, and the ones which are available are now half the rate they were just months ago because of supply and demand. I have been on unemployment assistance since losing my job in early June. However, despite cutting out all extra expenses and living just to pay the rent and bills, car insurance, cell phone, internet, gas, groceries, I am down to my last 8K in savings. I have a Roth IRA of just 12K, which I prefer not to touch because I'm in my late 40s and need to keep that going. A second Roth, which has just 4K, and single stocks worth 10K. Because of a tax error last year, for the first time in my life, I owe 6K on top of all of this. I have also been using my credit cards to pay for things like gas and minimal groceries over the last several months and have been paying a little more than minimum to keep my repayment record on track. I now owe 5K in credit card debt. For comparison, at this time last year, I had a 20K nest egg and an 800 credit score with just 5K in school loan debt. In short, my question is, should I sell my 10K in stocks to help pay off my debt and keep me afloat? If my single stocks are worth around 10K, what are the tax implications? And stocks are down right now, so I'd get less back in the end. I bought the stocks as an experiment when things were flush and I had a nest egg. But now I just don't know what to do. I could really use some advice. Trying to stay calm about things, but definitely needing a life raft. Thank you for all you do. Sincerely, Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca, I uh, first of all, I'm so sorry for everything that you're going through. I know because of the strike, there are so, so many people who are in similar situations, but it is difficult. Let me answer your specific questions first, and then we'll talk just in general a little bit. I would sell the stocks to help pay off the debt and keep you afloat or use some of the money that's in savings in order to do that. One of the things that we look at when we think about where to get the next dollar from is basically the cost of that money. And if you're putting things on credit cards, right now credit card interest rates are up to about 20%. I mean, they're just more expensive than they have been in quite some time. And For that reason, you don't want to be racking up credit card debt. It's going to cost you more than you would earn on either money in a savings account, even if it's a high interest rate savings account, or probably money in the market. So I probably would hold on to some of that savings, sell the stocks. The tax implications depend on whether or not you have a gain on those stocks. You said the stocks are down, so it sounds like you wouldn't have a gain in those stocks. That's a tax loss that you can use against any ordinary income. So it may actually help you at tax time. You can use up to $3,000 against ordinary income. If you have a, a greater loss than that, you can also carry it forward. I'm just assuming that you have no gains on your stocks that you would use to offset those. As far as the overall situation, I know that you say that you're on unemployment. I would look at whether a part-time job in a different field 
or a job in a different field that you could pick up would pay you more or less than that unemployment assistance. Unemployment is, you know, it's not a lot. It's not enough to sustain many people. Clearly, you're finding yourself in a, in a little bit of a hole. So I would take a little bit of time and think about the skills that you have and how you might apply them in fields that are actually hiring. You said you're you're working in the docu-series space. To me, that says you probably have amazing research skills. You probably have really good writing skills. There are a lot of different companies in industries that actually are hiring that could use those skills. You may be even able to find yourself a position in a marketing department or an advertising department of a company that you never thought of. So I, I'd say cast a slightly wider net. Again, I hope the strike is going to be over shortly, but the field has been changing over time. That's part of the reason that the union is out on strike now anyway. And you may feel better long-term if you can find yourself a job where you are using your skills, you're flexing your creative skills, but you're just doing it in a slightly different way. So lots of luck with this, Rebecca. I'd love you to keep in touch and let us know what happens. It's hard, Jules. I mean, being out of work. It's horrible. Being out of work. You were out of work for a while during the pandemic. It's tough. Yeah. It was, I think, six months for me. Yeah. It's horrible. And I have friends in the film industry and even those that work on the talent side and are are feeling all sides of it. Fingers crossed it gets resolved soon. Absolutely. Let's take the next one. All right. Our next question comes to us from Zafar. I am trying to plan for my kids to go to college. I am at a salary where we don't qualify for a lot of grants and only loans, which are predatory. What other options do middle-class income parents have for our kids' education? besides a college savings plan. I have four. Thanks, Zafar. So I guess when he says I have four, he has four kids. That is a lot. That is a lot. In terms of college tuition. Here's what I would say, Zafar. The loans are not all predatory. In fact, I would say most student loans are not predatory. The federal ones are, in fact, offered at interest rates that are generally below market rates of interest, pretty palatable, and they offer generous repayment provisions on the back end. You've heard a lot of people talking about things like SAVE, the new income-based repayment program that the Biden administration rolled out. And it caps your loan payments as a graduate at 10% of income. That is a position where people find themselves, in many cases, able to make those payments. So here's what I'd say. Apply for financial aid. Definitely apply for financial aid. I would plan on the fact that you're going to use those federal loans, at least the federal loans, to get your kids started. And then The trick here is not so much in the financial aid, it's in the application. You want to make sure that your kids are applying to schools that really want to have them. They should not be applying early decision because they want to make sure that they get all the offers in so that they can see who's offering them the best deal. And as you 
cast a net for schools, make sure that you cast it fairly wide so that you have a lot of choices and really get in touch with these schools so that you can get a sense of what is going to match up with your children's need. The other way to significantly cut the cost of college is to do two years in a community college and then transfer those credits to a four-year school and finish out your degree there. It basically cuts the cost of college in half. So I hope that that's helpful so far, and good luck with all of these applications. And if you've got any money-related questions, Julia and I would love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. And now we are going to take a quick break. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we're back with your money tip of the week. October is here, and that not only means dusting off our Halloween decorations and stocking up on candy. By the way, I always stock up on candy. But it also means we actually have to start thinking about paying off student loans. If you are among those who have to start paying again, you might be tempted to refinance your loans in an attempt to save money. Not so fast. For many people, doing that would put you in, well, a spooky bad situation. That's because the cost of credit has increased substantially. For the most common undergraduate loans, this year's rate is 5.5%. That's up from 2 and 3 quarters percent in 2020. Let's talk about the risks of refinancing a federal loan with a private lender. For one, that debt would no longer be eligible for forgiveness via income-based repayment programs like the Biden administration's new SAVE plan. You'd also be left out of possible future mass debt forgiveness plans. There is an argument for refinancing, though, in some cases. The first is if you have graduate or parent loans. That's because many non-undergrad loans don't qualify for those good income-based repayment plans. The second case is if you are someone who's got a low salary now, like, say, a medical resident, but you anticipate a higher one down the road. In this case, a refi gives you the opportunity to stretch out your term and lower your payment. And when your salary climbs, you can just very quickly make up the difference. Bottom line, take a deep breath, don't panic, and consider all your options before refinancing. Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Allison Fergale for teaching us how to use weak language to our advantage. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. 
We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. It's hosted by Karen Feinerman, who you know from CNBC, and also from Her Money's Investing Fix program, our investing club for women, where we've got hundreds of women learning how to invest every other Monday night on Zoom. Check that out if you're interested as well. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.